Hey, did you bring one of these? You're going to need one of these. Uh, if you're new around here, you're probably always going to need one of these. So if you don't have a Bible, all you got to do is find me after the service. I will send you home with a Bible. But you probably got it on your phone. You've got it on your iPad. You've got it all over the place. But wherever you've got it, you're going to need it. Because, guys, um, this is the Word of God. It is life-changing. It is world-changing. We teach it here at Grace Fellowship. We love it. We try to apply it to our lives. It is the standard by which we live. And that's why on Sunday mornings, uh, instead of me getting up here and going, hey guys, I had some neat thoughts this week. Let me share them with you. Um, We always open this book together because God's word is powerful. It is life-changing. And so as a church, we're just completely committed to this idea that, you know, things change. Um, You know, as a church over the years that I've been here, we have changed locations on multiple occasions. We have uh, torn down buildings and built new buildings. We have seen people come and go. We've had new programs and changed the way we do things. But one thing is never going to change. We're going to preach the word of God. We're going to teach the word of God. We're going to apply the word of God. We're going to live by the word of God. Amen? Amen. So I'm very, very thankful that we have God's word. People go, how is it that you know like something new to say every Sunday? I'm like, I never say anything new. I just go to this really old book and it is always saying something new. It's such a cool thing. I'm really pumped about that. So um, one of the things I love about the word of God is that It doesn't make any effort to gloss over the weaknesses of the Bible heroes, right? Um, It's really interesting to me, whether it's uh, Abraham's fear and the sin that he gets into because of that fear, or whether it's Moses' temper tantrums and the trouble that that causes, or whether it's Elijah's depression, or whether it's Peter's denials or whatever, we get to see behind the curtain and we see the characters of scripture, warts and all, and that's good. Um, It's good for a couple reasons. Number one, I can relate to people like that because I are a people like that, right? And second, um, the so-called heroes of the Bible are never meant to be seen as heroes. There's only uh, one hero in the entire Bible and his name is God. It's designed to point us to him. It's supposed to help us to see the real hero in the story. And so, so even when we're looking at these heroic characters, we realize they stumble and fall, and the hero that comes along and scoops them up and makes them right is God himself. And, and that's one of the reasons I love going through the story of David. We've been doing this overview now for a couple of months, just sort of looking at some highlights, some moments, some lowlights in the life of David, but um, the truth of the matter is David is imperfect, and that doesn't bother me in the least. Um, You know what, guys? Christian leaders stumble and fall. The, The people you respect the most will disappoint you from time to time. Your mentors and your teachers and your parents and your pastors, um, they're imperfect people just like you. And, and 
I love the fact that in the pages of scripture, we keep running into people like that and we can relate to them because God alone is perfect. God alone will never leave you or forsake you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And you can always count on him to be who he is. And that's one reason I'm enjoying this overview of the life of David. He's one of the most famous men of God in the history of the world, but the Bible presents him to us as he really was, a man who was imperfect, a man who was deeply flawed, but who loved God and devoted his life and oriented his life toward God, and God gets to show himself strong. I can relate to a person like that. I hope you can. But remember, David is not the hero of the story. God is. David had some great moments, but as you probably know, he also had some terrible moments. Um, He let his followers down on more than one occasion. But more importantly, on those occasions, he failed to honor God. And that's a big deal. Remember, this is the David who was chosen by God. This is the David who was known as a man after God's own heart. This is the same David who defeated Goliath and rode off as the hero. This is the same David who wrote so many of the Psalms that we read in our Bibles and cherish to this day. Same guy, and yet when we look into the darker corners of his life, we may not like what we see. How could a man like David do some of the wicked things that he did? And that's a fair question. Until we think of our own failures and, and the skeletons that may be residing in our own closets. And if you're like me, seeing that David failed, but that that was not the end of his story is very, very encouraging because I can relate to that. And maybe by learning what David went through, we might just learn a little bit about ourselves. And most of all, we take an honest look at David's life, we're gonna get a chance to learn something about God and who he is and how that's gonna apply in our lives as well, because he's the real hero of the story. So we're gonna open David's closet today. We're gonna let some of the skeletons fall out. We're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So after all that talk I did about the Bible, hopefully you got one. Open it up, get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's in your Old Testament. And as you're turning there, I'm gonna just tell you the truth. I struggled with this this week, thought about this again and again and again, and I just cannot come up with a good, dramatic way to tell you the story that we're about to run across, and the reason is because you all have already seen the movie. You all already know this story. I would be surprised there's anyone in the room who doesn't know something about what we're going to find out today. Um, So rather than me trying to build up the suspense and let you sort of wonder what's gonna happen, I'm just gonna read you the whole story right from beginning to end. Then we're gonna circle back and look at it and go, okay, what can we learn from this story? And I'm just gonna warn you right up front, it's a sad story. It is a dark day in David's life. And we're gonna close the chapter today and it's still gonna be dark. Chapter 11, verse one. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. 
Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent his messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David said to Joab, Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men in the city went down and fought against Joab and some of his people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. There you have it. David's disgraceful sin. There's no need to beat around the bush here. David failed miserably. He sinned shamefully. And by the way, this is a great reminder that when we sin, most of the time, other people suffer. You you say, well, this is a harmless thing. This is just about, no, nothing's ever just about you. And, and that was certainly the case in David's story. And David's sin set in motion a series of events that went from bad to worse. And by the way, in case you haven't already noticed this in your own experience, this is how sin works. This story is like a, an anatomy of sin study. This is how sin works. Satan tempts us with something that seems great or at least not that bad, no big deal, and, and um, it's really just the bait with a hook inside of it. And, and when we take the bait, things go from bad to worse. It's a strategy he's been using for all of time. And, and you know, it's still being used today. It's, it's a con- it maybe think of it this way. The, the drug dealer who, who needs more customers, right? How does he get those more customers? Your first bit of heroin is free. 
because he knows that when you're hooked, you're hooked and you'll be buying from him forevermore until finally your life is destroyed and the point, to the point where you die and then he has to go give some free heroin to somebody else. And, and at first, it seems great. At first, it seems like a deal you can't pass up, but it's, it's just bait and there's a hook inside the bait. Remember, God has not like, let me put it this way. Forbidden fruit is forbidden for a reason. It's not that God hates you and he wants you to have a miserable life so he gives you a bunch of rules to follow so you won't be able to do any of the fun things that you would like to do. It is exactly the opposite. God loves us. He wants us to experience life abundantly and so he gives us a pathway to that and says if you stay on this path you will experience abundant life but when you wander off the path you will surely suffer and the people around you will suffer. Remember the Bible warns us the wages of sin is death. He tells us this. It's not a surprise. He warned Adam and Eve right from the beginning. But once we take the bait, things go from bad to worse. But how? How does this happen? Well, we get to see David's life as an example and and sort of a cautionary tale. The first thing that went wrong in this story of David is that David got careless. This is something we all need to learn. Do you remember uh, learning to drive as a teenager? Do you remember those first couple of times behind the wheel with the driver instructor in the next seat and your hands are at 10 and two and you check the mirror 75 times and then you start the engine? Remember that? And you remember what it's like when, when you know exactly what the speed limit is on every street that you're on, that you come to a full and complete stop behind the limit line at every intersection, that you would never break any laws and all of that. And, and I learned to drive that way. If you're old enough to drive, you learn to drive that way. If you have older children, you probably taught your children to drive that way. I had a full head of hair until my kids became teenagers. <laughs> And I took them out and taught them how to drive and my hair just flew out the windows of the car. (laughs) It's the most stressful thing in the world, but man, you can get them to follow the rules when they're first learning. Give that kid a year under his belt and suddenly the only time he checks the mirror is to see if his hair looks good. And the rest of the time, he is just cranking up the tunes, goofing off with his friends, cruising through the streets. You begin to get careless once you get comfortable. Once you think you got this thing, you begin to get careless. And guess what? David got careless. Go back to verse one. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him at all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. The winter has passed. The spring has come. And that meant it is time for the battles to begin again. Verse one tells us where David should have been that night when he ended up on the roof of the palace. And by the way, if you're wondering, well, who in the world walks around on their roof? 
In Israel, the houses are built in such a way that the roofs are flat. There's usually no yards whatsoever, but you have this flat roof and it becomes sort of your outdoor area. And that's where you go to relax and you do outdoor entertaining on your roof. And that's what David was doing. But he's on his roof when the scripture says kings are supposed to be at battle. But he sent somebody else. He sent Joab, who is one of his generals, and he sends Joab out along with the fighting men and all of the people known as David's mighty men, and they go out to battle, and David is left alone at Jerusalem, and he says, I'm gonna get some R&R. I'm gonna let them do the hard work. I'm gonna stay back where it's peaceful and easy, and I'm gonna kick back. He should have been somewhere else, but he decided he was above that. And by the way, him being alone That means his support system wasn't there. Don't miss that. These are the men that David depended upon. They were his friends. The Bible calls them David's mighty men. He had this inner circle of men that he entrusted himself to. They fought together. They prayed together. They worshiped God together. But when David went up on that roof that night, he was all alone. And his guard was all the way down. And that's when the temptation came. When we isolate, we put ourselves in grave danger. And if you have any experience with this, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. When you get discouraged, when you get depressed, when you feel shame, don't you just want to close the door and isolate? And that is the thing that puts us in harm's way. So with that danger, David goes up on his roof that night. We're not meant to be alone, you guys. We're created for community. And this is not just if you happen to be an extrovert. You could be the world's largest introvert and you still need people in your life. You still need people who know you, who love you, who support you, who will sometimes kick you in the pants and say, it is time for you to change. We need that. God created us for that. But David decided he was above that and he dropped his guard. And that's when the temptation came, verse two. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David went and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now it says that the woman was beautiful but every man in this room knows that's irrelevant. The point is she was naked. And, and I'm not saying that to be funny. Uh, here's what I'm saying. There are, there are some universal temptations. And, and I don't care what this woman looked like. Apparently she happened to be beautiful, but, but any any red-blooded heterosexual man would say that if he sees a naked woman, there is a temptation for him to focus in that direction. That this is hopefully not shocking to any of you. You probably knew this, right? And, and so she's bathing and he sees her. Now, let me stop here and tell you that seeing a woman naked is not a sin, There's no indication that he went up on the roof to be a peeping Tom. 
That was not his purpose. He was up there doing whatever he was doing, relaxing. For all we know, he, was, he may have been writing one of the Psalms while he was up there. For all we know, he was worshiping God in song. For all we know, he was in prayer. In fact, my guess is he was probably doing something like that because those are the times when Satan really goes after you. Right, And so whatever he's doing up there, suddenly he looks and he sees a naked woman. That is called temptation, not sin. It's so important that we understand the difference between temptation and sin. He still had a choice about what to do next. He should have immediately looked the other way He should have immediately come off the roof. He should have gone to his men instead of saying, hey, go find out more about that woman. He should have said, hey, send a woman over to her house and tell her to close her drapes. That's what he should have done. But as you know, it's not what he did do. To be tempted is not a sin. We are all tempted. Jesus was tempted but he did not sin. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's your New Testament. Turn over there. I want us to look at it together briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. I love this verse. It, it gives me such courage and hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation <clears throat> has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Now, if we had time, we could do a study on temptation. We could jump over to the book of James where James tells us that anytime you are tempted, you are never being tempted by God. So don't misunderstand this verse to think that God gives you a temptation to see how you'll do and it gives you a way of escape. No, the temptation comes from the enemy. The temptation is built up within you from your own flesh and God seeing the temptation provides for you a way of escape. And when you have that way of escape, you are not stuck. Because you're tempted doesn't mean you have to sin. You have a choice. So let's be clear. We can't blame Bathsheba for this incident. We don't get the story from her perspective. We don't know what it was like for her. But I can tell you this, and I'm going to get on, off my notes and onto a soapbox for a second, and tell you this, religious men have been blaming women for their lust for way too long. Well, if she didn't dress that way, well, obviously she was flirting. She, she, she dressed like she wanted it. Well, guess what? There's an option. We could put all of our women in burqas. The world does that, you know. There are places where you can only see a woman's eyes. Why is that? It's designed to protect men from their lust. And guess what happens? Men lust over those eyes. Because the lust comes from within. And so a message to all of us, it's not just men who lust. And it's not even just men who lust sexually, but there's all kinds of lust. You can lust after anything that the Lord hasn't given you that you wish you could have, right? But for those of us who, in lusting, blame the object of our temptation for our lust, you are completely off base. You have a choice. 
And so it is not someone else's fault when you sin. Now, should women dress modestly? Yes, to honor God. But it is not the woman's fault when a man chooses to give in to lust. Listen, guys and ladies, if you're caught up in lust, it's not somebody else's fault, it is your choice. And there is a way of escape. You have a choice. You don't get to blame anybody else for your sin. When you do that, when you blame someone else, you create all kinds of more problems instead of dealing with the first problem which is in your heart. David should have walked away, but instead he allowed his glance to become a gaze. He, the, 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 the picture popped up on his desktop and he clicked on it and he followed it down that rabbit hole to lust and destruction. That's what happened. Verse three tells us that he acts on it. He takes it one step further. He inquires about this woman who caught his eye. Um, back to, I'm sorry, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Back to verse three, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. So David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? This verse actually gives us some insight into the depth of David's sin here. Bathsheba wasn't just a neighbor. If we had been carefully reading all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, we would have run across this name Eliam before. Eliam is one of David's mighty men. He is one of the inner circle, the guys that are supposed to be there for one another, to support one another, and to walk together in this life. Eliam is one of David's best friends. Bathsheba is his daughter. And Eliam's father, Bathsheba's grandfather, is a guy by the name of Ahithophel, and Ahithophel is literally in David's cabinet. He's one of his key advisors. These are men who are David's best friends. Friends, so when he sins in this way, he's not just sinning against Bathsheba, he's not just sinning against Uriah, her husband, who by the way is out there fighting the battle he's supposed to be out there fighting, he is also sinning against these other men. This is a dastardly thing to do. This is the kind of thing that gets you beat up. He has completely lost control of himself. To get involved with her sexually is not only an affront and a sin against Bathsheba, it's a major affront to these men who are nothing but faithful to David. So David understands at this point there is absolutely no way he should get involved with this woman. She is off limits to him for a dozen reasons. So he says, bring her to me. The seeds have already been planted in his mind. The lust has taken root in his heart and things are about to get much worse. Look at verse four. David sent messengers and took her and when she came to him, he lay with her and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. I want you to notice a couple of phrases there. He took her. He didn't invite her. He took her. And then it doesn't say, and they, they lay together. It says, he lay with her. And so 
I don't want to get too far off on a tangent here, but this verse is really hard to stomach because it makes it clear that Bathsheba really had no choice in this matter. They took her. She had no power in this, no choice. It, it, it's not clear that he forced himself on her. We don't know that. But in my mind, this is not an affair. This is a rape. She is absolutely no, she's a woman. Her husband and father are not there to protect her because they are off fighting the king's battles. And he's the king, the king. She has no choice here. Her life is being altered. Her dignity is being compromised. She is being sexually assaulted. Let's not call it anything but what it is. And this sort of thing continues to happen to this day. And again, I'm gonna try not to be too long on this tangent, but, but men in positions of power have been taking advantage of women who don't have that power since men and women started. And you don't need me to tell you, the Me Too movement is all about this, right? That, that over and over and over again, and guys, it's not just men and women. Here's the thing, people are sinners. And therefore, those who have power are tempted to use their power to take advantage of those who do not have power. In, in this, and it doesn't matter if it's the rich taking advantage of the poor, or if it's the politically powerful taking advantage of the politically weak, or the physically strong taking advantage of the physically weak, or, or men taking advantage of women, or the majority taking advantage of the minority, and it wouldn't matter if you switch to the majority and the minority are, because then the other group would take advantage of the weaker group, because it is a sign of sin that we want what we want, and we're willing to hurt other people to get it, and unless Jesus comes into our life and transforms our heart and gives us a new heart, we will forever be stuck in that cycle. This is what sinners do. She has no choice and he sexually assaults her. It was a sin then, it's a sin now. Bathsheba is a victim and David is guilty of one of the most heinous crimes imaginable, rape. But then the cover-up begins, and things go from bad to worse. You see, Bathsheba became pregnant by David. How can this be explained when her husband is away at war? How are we going to explain that? He's going to come back, and he's going to do the math, and he's going to say, what in the world happened? And you know what's going to happen? Bathsheba will be put to death. That's what's going to happen. And so David decides to cover this thing up. And we can look at him from our high horse and go, what a dirtbag. Not only did he sin, but he tried to cover it up. And to which I would say to you, ever done that? It's the first thing that pops into our mind. When things, when we get caught up in something, we look for ways to cover up. That's what they did in the garden. That's what David did in the palace. It's what you and I do in our own lives. So David comes up with a plan. He brings her husband home. What a beautiful idea. After all, when a man gets a couple of days home with his wife after being away at war and he gets a weekend of leave to come home to his wife, what do you think is gonna happen? Don't answer that out loud. Just So he brings the husband home. 
But David didn't count on the fact that Uriah had more integrity in his little finger than David had in his whole life. Look at verse eight. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house to present from the, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have, have you not come from our journey? Why'd you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie? with my wife, by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. This is plan B, I'll get him drunk. Once he gets drunk, he'll forget his high morals and he will go spend the night with his wife. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him. He made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now, now David has a real problem. The cover-up is not working. Plan A did not work. Plan B did not work. And so he quickly moves on to plan C because as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitfully wicked. And that was true of David as well. So he came up with plan C. And that was even more despicable than plan A or plan B. He gives the order for Uriah to be sacrificed on the battlefield. This is nothing short of murder. So let's, let's uh, add up the list now. We have rape, adultery, and murder. Uriah is left dead on the battlefield. He sends the order by the hand of Uriah himself. Uriah goes, gives it to the general. The general must follow the king's orders. This is the military. He doesn't have the courage to question it. And by the time the dust settles, a decision to avoid responsibility and stay home from the battle has led to rape, adultery, and unplanned pregnancy, and murder. And David has blood all over his hands. But he's not finished with the cover-up just yet. Skip down to verse 26. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. What a guy. What a peach of a guy. He felt so bad for his dear friend Uriah that his, his widow was pregnant and he thought, what can I do? I'll marry the poor pregnant widow. He comes out of this smelling like a rose and everybody looks to David and says, what a guy. What a wonderful thing he has done. But there's just one problem. And the last sentence of the chapter tells us what the problem is. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
David seems to have gotten off scot-free. Uriah is no longer a threat. Bathsheba is in no position to say anything. And David has the admiration of the people for marrying this poor pregnant widow. But let me just tell you something that I know you might already know. Even if you fool everybody else, you're never gonna fool God. That's a fact. And God was not pleased by what he had seen in the life of David. It's a devastating story. It is a heartbreaking story. But the story doesn't end there. And next week, we're gonna see what happened next. But for today, we need to see what we can learn because I hope by now, you're you're past the point of just sitting and judging David. We're gonna let God worry about that. And you're starting to look inwardly and realize that you and I have a lot in common with this guy, David. And that we have been down this kind of road ourselves before. So what can we learn? Because Satan has not finished tempting you and me. He's gonna keep doing this. How can we avoid jumping into the pit that David jumped into when the temptation comes? You say, well, this kind of temptation doesn't come to me. I'm not some king. I've never raped anybody or, or arranged, conspired to murder somebody. Listen, if you're a human being, you're susceptible to temptation. And one of the worst things that can happen is when we are so sure that we could never be tempted in an area that we just drop our guard and we give in to the temptation that comes. You may not be a king. You may not be committing rape or murder. But if you're a human being, you're a sinner. And you can be sure that Satan is tempting you just as much as he tempted David. So what can we learn from David's mistakes so we can avoid that same result. First, don't get careless. David could have avoided this whole mess if if he had just been where he was supposed to be. If he had just not been where he was not supposed to be. He should have been with his men leading in the battle. He shouldn't have been alone. None of us is better off by ourselves. When you get down, you're tempted to isolate. Do not do it. The next time you are tempted to just keep your distance from God's people, from your family, from the people you know, from the people who love you because you're ashamed, because you're hurting, because you're discouraged, because you're depressed, I want you to hear my words ringing in your head. Do not isolate yourself. When you do, you make yourself more susceptible to attack, not less. Make sure you have fellowship with believers who will support and encourage, yes, and challenge you. That's why we have grace groups and we make such an emphasis out of getting into a group where you can do life with people. It's why we have um, you know, groups for teenagers and young adults and whenever we can, we wanna get people into groups because ministry happens in the context of relationships. These days, it's very easy to sit home and watch worship services online, but we need more than that. We need genuine fellowship, so don't take the bait. We all need each other. Don't get careless. Second, no matter how strong the temptation to sin may be, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, then you have a choice. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, choose the way of escape. I'm always reminded of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Potiphar's wife is throwing herself at him. 
and, and he's saying no, and she's saying yes, and he's saying no, and she's saying yes, and I could just picture his lip quivering, and he's thinking, oh my gosh, what? I, I, I'm, I'm starting to lose my, my courage here. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And finally, she grabs him, and he runs. And you might laugh and go, man, she, she's holding his robe, and he's running half naked through the streets. Better to be running half naked through the streets than to be caught doing what is displeasing in the eyes of God. David, I mean, not David, Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Um, we don't have time to look it up, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young man who is in a position of spiritual leadership, and he says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts and run after righteousness. Flee youthful lusts. Guys, there's times when the thing to do is get out of the situation, Run. You're in a relationship where every time you're with this person, something bad happens. Maybe it's time to get out of that relationship. You find yourself in a situation where you keep stumbling in the same ways. Maybe it's time to stop stumbling. Get out of that situation. You say, well, you know, I, I struggle with alcohol. I, I've had a tendency to abuse alcohol. Maybe don't hang out in the bar. You have, a, you have a problem with lust? Maybe don't go to the strip club. Like, we have choices, guys. We need to make those choices and flee from temptation. And third, no matter how deep you might get into sin, it is never too late to repent and turn things around. If there's air in your lungs, God is still faithful. Some of us have just accepted the idea that it's too late. We're never gonna overcome this habit. We're never gonna avoid this temptation. There's nothing we can do to fix our failures, so we just get stuck, and we just give in. And we say, this is just who I am. Let me say, with all the confidence I can muster, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not too late to stop what you were doing, turn around and seek forgiveness and pursue righteousness again. Don't let the devil convince you that it is too late for you. There is a way of escape. It's called repentance and obedience. So don't lose heart. The temptations will always come, but greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. It is not too late for you. And believe it or not, it wasn't too late for David either. You have to come back next week to hear about how God reversed the situation, restores David to the middle of his will. It's amazing. The story of David is a story of an imperfect man who served a perfect God. That's your story too. So what do you need to do to put the pen back in the hands of the author and perfecter of our faith and let him finish writing your story? I'll see you next week with some encouraging answers to that question. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, it's with a certain amount of um, humility that we must come before you. Every one of us aware that um, we have some skeletons in our closets. Every one of us aware that we've had some areas where we have had a tendency to keep 
committing the same sins. Every one of us aware of our own weakness. God, thank you for that awareness. Don't let us ever get to the point where we think we've got it made. Don't let us ever get to the point where we think other people's sins are a problem, but our, our sins are no big deal. I pray, God, that we would understand what it is to really feel repentance, to really experience forgiveness, to really know your grace because we take our hands off and we stop insisting on our own ways. Help us to do this, God. We struggle with it. Admittedly, we struggle with it. So I pray for each person here, whether they're dealing with a lifetime of sin that they've never come to you with, and it's time for them to just bow their knee and say, Lord, I accept your forgiveness. Or whether they're dealing with one particular issue that they keep running into and struggling with, and they begin to lose hope, I pray, God, that you would fill them with hope. Give them a renewed sense of forgiveness and grace and redirection, that we would never just accept our sin, but that we would turn from it and flee and we would experience your goodness in the midst of this. Thank you for the example of David. He tried to flush his life down the toilet and you restored him. Help us, God, to be restored as well. Where we ask these things in Jesus' precious name.